0: Section thirty-two of a half century of conflict. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. A Half Century of Conflict by Francis Parkman. Chapter eighteen Part one seventeen forty-four to seventeen forty-five a mad scheme. The peace of Utrecht left unsettled the perilous questions of boundary between the rival powers in North America, and they grew more perilous every day. Yet the quarrel was not yet ripe, and though the French governor Vaudreuil, and perhaps also his successor Beauharnois, seemed willing to precipitate it, the courts of London and Versailles still hesitated to appeal to the sword. Now, as before, it was a European and not an American quarrel that was to set the world on fire. The War of the Austrian Succession broke out in 1744, when Frederick of Prussia seized Silesia and began that bloody conflict it meant that packs of howling savages would again spread fire and carnage along the new england border news of the declaration of war reached louisbourg some weeks before it reached boston and the french military governor duquesne thought he saw an opportunity to strike an unexpected blow for the profit of france and for his own great honour one of the french inhabitants of louisbourg has left us a short sketch of duquesne whom he calls capricious of an uncertain temper inclined to drink and when in his cups neither reasonable nor civil he adds that the governor had offended nearly every officer in the garrison and denounces him as the chief cause of our disasters when Duquesne heard of the declaration of war, his first thought was to strike some blow before the English were warned. The fishing station of Canzo was a tempting prize, being a near and inconvenient neighbor at the southern end of the Strait of Canzo, which separates the Acadian Peninsula from the island of Cape Breton, or Isle Royale of which louisbourg was the place of strength nothing was easier than to seize canzo which had no defence but a wooden redoubt built by the fishermen and occupied by about eighty englishmen thinking no danger early in may duquesne sent captain duvivier against it with six hundred or as the english say nine hundred soldiers and sailors escorted by two small armed vessels. The English surrendered on condition of being sent to Boston, and the miserable hamlet, with its wooden citadel, was burned to the ground. Thus far successful, the governor addressed himself to the capture of Annapolis, which meant the capture of all Acadia. Duvivier was again appointed to the command his heart was in the work for he was a descendant of la tour feudal claimant of acadia in the preceding century four officers and 90 regular troops were given to him and from 3 to 400 micmac and maliseet indians joined him on the way the micmacs under command it is said of their missionary la Loutre, had already tried to surprise the english fort but had only succeeded in killing two unarmed stragglers in the adjacent garden. Annapolis, from the neglect and indifference of the British Ministry, was still in such a state of dilapidation that its sandy ramparts were crumbling into the ditches, and the cows of the garrison walked over them at their pleasure. It was held by about a hundred effective men under Major Masquerine, a French Protestant, whose family had been driven into exile by the persecutions that followed the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, Shirley, Governor of Massachusetts, sent him a small reinforcement of militia. But as most of these came without arms and Mascarene had few or none to give them, they proved of doubtful value. Du Vivier and his followers, white and red appeared before the fort in August, made their camp behind the ridge of a hill that overlooked it, and marched towards the rampart. But being met by a discharge of cannon-shot, they gave up all thoughts of an immediate assault, began a fusillade under cover of darkness, and kept the garrison on the alert all night." Vivier had looked for help from the Acadians of the neighboring village, who were French in blood, faith, and inclination. They would not join him openly, fearing the consequences if his attack should fail, but they did what they could without committing themselves, and made a hundred and fifty scaling-ladders for the besiegers. Vivier now returned to his first plan of an assault, which, if made with vigour, could hardly have failed. Before attempting it, he sent Mascarene a flag of truce to tell him that he hourly expected two powerful armed ships from Louisbourg, besides a reinforcement of 250 regulars with cannon, mortars, and other engineering of war. At the same time he proposed favourable terms of capitulation, not to take effect till the French warships should have appeared. Mascarene refused all terms, saying that when he saw the French ships he would consider what to do, and meanwhile would defend himself as he could. The expected ships were the Ardent and the Caribou, then at Louisbourg, a French writer says that when Duquesne directed their captains to sail for Annapolis and aid in its capture, they refused, saying that they had no orders from the court. Duvivier protracted the parley with Masquerine, and waited in vain for the promised succour. At length the truce was broken off, and the garrison which had profited by it to get rest and sleep greeted the renewal of hostilities with three cheers now followed three weeks of desultory attacks but there was no assault though de vivier had boasted that he had the means of making a successful one he waited for the ships which did not come and kept the acadians at work in making ladders and fire arrows at length instead of aid from louisbourg Two small vessels appeared from Boston, bringing Mascarene a reinforcement of fifty Indian rangers. This discouraged the besiegers, and towards the end of September they suddenly decamped and vanished. The expedition was a failure, writes the Habitante de Louisbourg, though one might have bet everything on its success, so small was the force that the enemy had to resist us. This writer thinks that the seizure of Canzo and the attack of Annapolis were sources of dire calamity to the French. Perhaps, he says, the English would have let us alone if we had not first insulted them. It was the interest of the people of New England to live at peace with us, and they would no doubt have done so if we had not taken it into our heads to waken them from their security. They expected that both parties would merely stand on the defensive without taking part in this cruel war that has set Europe in a blaze. Whatever might otherwise have been the disposition of the Bastonnet or New England people, the attacks on Canzo and Annapolis alarmed and exasperated them, and engendered in some heated brains a project of wild audacity. This was no less than the capture of Louisbourg, reputed the strongest fortress, French or British, in North America, with the possible exception of Quebec, which owed its chief strength to nature and not to art. Louisbourg was a standing menace to all the northern British colonies. It was the only French naval station on the continent, and was such a haunt of privateers that it was called the American Dunkirk. It commanded the chief entrance of Canada, and threatened to ruin the fisheries, which were nearly as vital to New England as was the fur trade to New France. The French government had spent twenty-five years in fortifying it, and the cost of its powerful defences constructed after the system of Vauban was reckoned at thirty million livres. This was the fortress which William Vaughan of Damariscotta advised Governor Shirley to attack with 1,500 raw New England militia. Vaughan was born at Portsmouth in 1703, and graduated at Harvard College 19 years later. His father, also a graduate of Harvard, was for a time Lieutenant Governor of New Hampshire, Soon after leaving college, the younger Vaughan, a youth of restless and impetuous activity, established a fishing station on the island of Matinicus, off the coast of Maine, and afterwards became the owner of most of the land on both sides of the little river de Mariscota, where he built a garrison house or wooden fort, established a considerable settlement, and carried on an extensive trade in fish and timber. He passed for a man of ability and force, but was accused of a headstrong rashness, a self-confidence that hesitated at nothing, and a harebrained contempt of every obstacle in his way. Once, having fitted out a number of small vessels at Portsmouth for his fishing at Matinicus, he named a time for sailing, it was a gusty and boisterous March day. The sea was rough, and old sailors told him that such craft could not carry sail. Vaughan would not listen, but went on board and ordered his men to follow. One vessel was wrecked at the mouth of the river. The rest, after severe buffeting, came safe with their owner to Matinicus. Being interested in the fisheries, Vaughan was doubly hostile to Louisbourg, their worst enemy. He found a willing listener in the governor, William Shirley. Shirley was an English barrister who had come to Massachusetts in 1731 to practice his profession and seek his fortune. After filling various offices with credit, he was made governor of the province in 1741, and had discharged his duties with both tact and talent. He was able, sanguine, and a sincere well-wisher to the province, though gnawed by an insatiable hunger for distinction. He thought himself a born strategist, and was possessed by a propensity for contriving military operations, which finally cost him dear. Vaughan, who knew something of Louisbourg, told him that in winter the snow-drifts were often banked so high against the rampart that it could be mounted readily if the assailants could but time their arrival at the right moment. This was not easy, as that rocky and tempestuous coast was often made inaccessible by fogs and surf. Shirley, therefore, preferred a plan of his own contriving but nothing could be done without first persuading his assembly to consent. On the 9th of January the General Court of Massachusetts, a convention of grave city merchants and solemn rustics from the country villages, was astonished by a message from the Governor to the effect that he had a communication to make, so critical that he wished the whole body to swear secrecy. The request was novel but being then on good terms with Shirley, the representatives consented and took the oath. Then, to their amazement, the governor invited them to undertake forthwith the reduction of Louisbourg. The idea of an attack on that redoubtable fortress was not new, since the autumn proposals had been heard to petition the British Ministry to make the attempt under a promise that the colonies would give their best aid, but that Massachusetts should venture it alone, or with such doubtful help as her neighbors might give, at her own charge and risk, though already insolvent, without the approval or consent of the Ministry, and without experienced officers or trained soldiers, was a startling suggestion to the sober-minded legislators of the General Court they listened however with respect to the governor's reasons and appointed a committee of the two houses to consider them the committee deliberated for several days and then made a report adverse to the plan as was also the vote of the court meanwhile in spite of the oath the secret had escaped it is said that a country member more pious than discreet prayed so loud and fervently at his lodgings for light to guide him on the momentous question that his words were overheard and the mystery of the closed doors was revealed the news flew through the town and soon spread through all the province after his defeat in the assembly shirley returned vexed and disappointed to his house in roxbury a few days later, James Gibson, a Boston merchant, says that he saw him walking slowly down King Street, with his head bowed down, as if in a deep study. He entered my counting-room, pursues the merchant, and abruptly said, "'Gibson, do you feel like giving up the expedition to Louisbourg?' Gibson replied that he wished the House would reconsider their vote." "'You are the very man I want!' exclaimed the governor. They then drew up a petition for reconsideration, which Gibson signed, promising to get also the signatures of merchants, not only of Boston, but of Salem, Marblehead, and other towns along the coast. In this he was completely successful, as all New England merchants looked on Louisbourg as an arch-enemy.' The petition was presented, and the question came again before the Assembly. There had been much intercourse between Boston and Louisbourg, which had largely depended on New England for provisions. The captured militiamen of Canzo, who, after some delay, had been sent to Boston, according to the terms of surrender, had used their opportunities to the utmost and could give surely much information concerning the fortress it was reported that the garrison was mutinous and that provisions were fallen short so that the place could not hold out without supplies from france these however could be cut off only by blockading the harbor with a stronger naval force than all the colonies together could supply the assembly had before reached the reasonable conclusion that the capture of louisbourg was beyond the strength of Massachusetts, and that the only course was to ask the help of the mother country. The reports of mutiny, it was urged, could not be depended upon. Raw militia in the open field were no match for disciplined troops behind ramparts. The expense would be enormous, and the credit of the province, already sunk low, would collapse under it. We should fail, and instead of sympathy get nothing but ridicule such were the arguments of the opposition to which there was little to answer except that if massachusetts waited for help from england louisbourg would be reinforced and the golden opportunity lost the impetuous and irrepressible vaughan put forth all his energy the plan was carried by a single vote and even this result was said to be due to the accident of a member in opposition falling and breaking a leg as he was hastening to the house. The die was cast, and now doubt and hesitation vanished. All alike set themselves to push on the work. Shirley wrote to all the colonies as far south as Pennsylvania to ask for cooperation. All excused themselves except Connecticut— new hampshire and rhode island and the whole burden fell on the four new england colonies these and massachusetts above all blazed with pious zeal for as the enterprise was directed against roman catholics it was supposed in a peculiar manner to commend itself to heaven there were prayers without ceasing in churches and families, and all was ardor, energy, and confidence, while the other colonies looked on with distrust, dashed with derision. When Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia heard what was afoot, he wrote to his brother in Boston, Fortified towns are hard nuts to crack, and your teeth are not accustomed to it but some men seem to think that forts are as easy taken as snuff. It has been said of Franklin that while he represented some of the New England qualities, he had no part in that enthusiasm of which our own time saw a crowning example when the cannon opened at Fort Sumter, and which pushes to its end without reckoning chances, counting costs, or heeding the scoffs of ill-wishers. The prevailing hope and faith were, it is true, born largely of ignorance, aided by the contagious zeal of those who first broached the project, for as usual in such cases a few individuals supplied the initiate fort of the enterprise. Vaughan the indefatigable rode express to Portsmouth with a letter from Shirley to Benning Wentworth, governor of New Hampshire. That pompous and self-important personage admired the Massachusetts governor, who far surpassed him in talents and acquirements, and who at the same time knew how to soothe his vanity. Wentworth was ready to do his part, but his province had no money, and the king had ordered him to permit the issue of no more paper currency, the same prohibition had been laid upon Shirley, but he, with sagacious forecast, had persuaded his masters to relent so far as to permit the issue of fifty thousand pounds in what were called bills of credit to meet any pressing exigency of war. He told this to Wentworth, and succeeded in convincing him that his province might stretch her credit like Massachusetts in case of military need. New Hampshire was thus enabled to raise a regiment of five hundred men out of her scanty population, with the condition that a hundred and fifty of them should be paid and fed by Massachusetts. Shirley was less fortunate in Rhode Island, the governor of that little colony called Massachusetts our avowed enemy always trying to defame us. There was a grudge between the neighbors, due partly to notorious ill-treatment by the Massachusetts Puritans of Roger Williams, founder of Rhode Island, and partly to one of those boundary disputes which often produced ill-blood among the colonies. The representatives of Rhode Island, forgetting past differences, voted to raise 150 men for the expedition. Till learning that the project was neither ordered nor approved by the home government they prudently reconsidered their action they voted however that the colony sloop tartar carrying fourteen cannon and twelve swivels should be equipped and manned for the service and that the governor should be instructed to find and commission a captain and a lieutenant to command her connecticut promised 516 men and officers, on condition that Roger Walcott, their commander, should have the second rank in the expedition. Shirley accordingly commissioned him as Major General. As Massachusetts was to supply above 3,000 men, or more than three-quarters of the whole force, she had a natural right to name a commander-in-chief it was not easy to choose one the colony had been at peace for twenty years and except some grizzled indian fighters of the last war and some survivors of the carthagena expedition nobody had seen service few knew well what a fortress was and nobody knew how to attack one courage energy good sense and popularity were the best qualities to be hoped for in the leader popularity was indispensable for the soldiers were all to be volunteers and they would not enlist under a commander whom they did not like shirley's choice was william pepperell a merchant of kittery knowing that benning wentworth thought himself the man for the place he made an effort to placate him and wrote that he would gladly have given him the chief command but for his gouty legs wentworth took fire at the suggestion forgot his gout and declared himself ready to serve his country and assume the burden of command the position was awkward and shirley was forced to reply on communicating your offer to two or three gentlemen in whose judgment i most confide I found them clearly of opinion that any alteration of the present command would be attended with great risk, both with respect to our assembly and the soldiers being entirely disgusted. The painter Smybert has left us a portrait of Pepperell, a good bourgeois face, not without dignity, though with no suggestion of the soldier, his spacious house at Kittery Point still stands, sound and firm, though curtailed in some of its proportions. Not far distant is another noted relic of colonial times, the not less spacious mansion built by the disappointed Wentworth at Little Harbour. I write these lines at a window of this curious old house, and before me spreads the scene familiar to Pepperell from childhood. Here the river Piscataqua widens to join the sea, holding in its gaping mouth the large island of Newcastle, with attended groups of islets and island rocks battered with the rack of ages, studded with dwarf savins, or half-clad with patches of whortleberry bushes, sumac, and the shining wax-myrtle, green in summer, red with the touch of October. The flood-tide Pours strong and full around them, only to ebb away and lay bare a desolation of rocks and stones buried in a shock of brown-drenched seaweed, broad tracts of glistening mud, sandbacks black with mussel-beds, and half-submerged meadows of eel-grass, with myriads of minute shellfish clinging to its long, lank tresses beyond all these lies the main or northern channel more than deep enough even when the tide is out to float a line of battleship on its farther bank stands the old house of the Pepperells, wearing even now an air of dingy respectability looking through its small quaint window panes one could see across the water the rude dwellings of fishermen along the shore of newcastle and the neglected earthwork called fort william and mary that feebly guarded the river's mouth in front the piscataqua curving southward widened to meet the atlantic between rocky headlands and foaming reefs and in dim distance the isles of shoals seemed floating on the pale grey sea End of section thirty-two